Thank you, Justin. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Springs. My name is Alberto, and I have the honor and privilege to serve as lead pastor of this church alongside our uh, awesome elder team, which uh, uh, consists of me and Thaddeus in the back, Father Thaddeus, Daddyus, as, as he's called by some. Uh, that's right, right? and it's, uh, it's an honor and privilege to uh, help shepherd this church together. If uh, this is your first time joining us, thank you for uh, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we believe that the Sunday morning is a time where we experience transformation uh, through, through the worship of God. And worship, as we know, is, is not just simply singing out songs that are worship songs that have been sung by people. Rather, worship is this experience that we enter into when we set our heart and our attention and our mind on God, and he begins to transform us as we look unto him. Um, And there's something powerful, this experience that the scriptures describe, that as we begin to set our eyes on Jesus, we begin to be transformed more and more into his image. We begin to look more and more like the person that, that we're giving our heart to, that we're adoring. And so when we sing, when we pray, when we meet and greet, uh, when we look at the word, this is an act of worship. And uh, I believe that as we look at this word and as we gather together, you will be transformed. Uh, you will experience God's power and God's grace at work in your life. Some of you may jump, uh, uh, you know, 180 degrees and today everything is going to turn around for you. And others, you'll just move one degree. But the scripture says it's one degree of glory to another. And so you will experience transformation today. So uh, we're going to be looking at the word as we worship God. Uh, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, uh, one more time. So if you need a Bible, I want to invite you uh, to look at the word with me. So if you want to quickly shoot up your hand, our team will, will see your hand and come place a Bible in your hand. And we want you to look at the scriptures with us. And uh, sometimes the technolo- technological stuff can be uh, a little bit distracting. So if I see you on Instagram, I will call you. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to call you out, uh, unless it's Twitter. Just kidding. No. Uh, tweet all you want, um, as long as it's the word of the Lord. Okay, I'm done there. I'm done there. Uh, so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. Uh, but before we do that, um, I, I want to take a moment to, as, as Christopher uh, sort of prayed for Ukraine, last week we, we kind of took a moment to hear from our Every Nation church family. We're part of a, a larger family called Every Nation, uh, and it's a, a family of churches and ministries all over the world. So what we're doing here, uh, we see this practice in other nations, and one of them is Ukraine. And uh, we have a handful of churches that we're connected to through our Every Nation family. Uh, and, and last week we spent some time praying for them. And uh, the prayer of a righteous person has much power, as the scripture says. And because of our prayers, we were able, we're seeing God's hand over this people, over this nation. Uh, as we see families escorted into safety and different gospel movements begin to rise up, people fortified and encouraged in the Lord. And so we actually have a video update uh, that I want to share with you guys before we get started in the word to kind of see what's happening on the ground with our Every Nation Church family in Ukraine. So we can go ahead and play that. Well, first of all, I would like to take a chance and thank everybody. We're deeply touched by support of our global family. We're grateful for your prayers and we feel them. And thank you for financial support. We have been using them actively. We changed our facility into refugee camp and we can receive up to 200 refugees in our building. As soon as our church members filled their homes, we started filling our church venue. We put mattresses on floor. We have a little kitchen, shower, toilets, everything. My home turned into a call center. Our church people are on a standby, going to bus station at 2, 4 a.m. sometimes to look for people they, they, they had never met. Our city got on the first day 150 tons of supplies for Lviv. We've been praying that in all this chaos, Holy Spirit would overcome the chaos and arrange and link people so the resources would not be wasted but would make the biggest possible impact. And we've been seeing stories that seems like God is answering our prayers. I really am praying for blessings and uh, revival 
coming out of the situation. There are 16 young guys from our churches here, love and healing churches, that have been drafted to the army and go to fight to the front. Even though there is terrible physical suffering, this is spiritual battle. In times like these, you can tell the difference between being part of an organization or being a part of a spiritual family. We know this is not a simple war. This is spiritual war as well for the heart and soul of people. And we believe God has special place in his heart for Ukraine. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Praise God. I, I, I'm so, uh, if you're sitting in here and, 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 and although it, although this gathering can seem kind of small and, and, and we're just in a, in a town that's so disconnected from, from what's going on over there, we are a part. We're connected to a spiritual family that's bigger than ourselves. And, and the scripture calls this the church, that, that when we place our faith in Jesus, we're immediately grafted in, not to just a local body, but a universal body. And so we get to mourn with other believers who are mourning. We get to rejoice with others who are rejoicing and our prayers are doing something our prayers are lifting heads and lives overseas in in ukraine as we see a church really rise up to be the church in the midst of persecution and we know that the power of darkness and evil will not overcome and that jesus will be victorious and so it's been so incredible to hear testimonies of revitalization renewal people getting this gospel into their hearts and not only uh, being transformed by jesus but loving uh, their neighbors and their enemies and, 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 their, and their friends with this good news. And so I'm just so encouraged that, that we get to be a part of a spiritual family um, and that we're not disconnected uh, from these global crises, but we get to come alongside them. And right now, it looks like uh, prayer. It looks like giving financially. And uh, we know that that goes a long way, church. So thank you for participating in that. Um, all right, so we're going to uh, take another turn, and we're going to look at the Word. Uh, and uh, our, our sermon series that we just started last week is called Lent and Our Journey to the Empty Tomb. And so maybe you were on social media, and maybe uh, you were scrolling uh, through, and you saw a lot of people posting about Ash Wednesday, and maybe you saw some posts about Lent, and you're thinking to yourself, what is, what is all this about, and what is the significance of this? Well, in the, in the Christian calendar, uh, early Christians would take these 40 days leading up to Easter— uh, to sort of prepare their hearts for Resurrection Sunday. It was a time where they would intentionally enter into the sufferings of Christ and consider their lives, consider how they're following Jesus and makes any sort of adjustments necessary uh, to be in step with Jesus. And so one of the practices would be fasting. Like, let's just take 40 days to, to, to turn away from something that we've been feasting on and, and instead feast on the Lord or draw near to the Lord. And um, in a simple way to think about it, it's sort of this time of recalibrating. Uh, resetting, uh, reorienting our heart on who Jesus is and examining our lives and, and seeing where have we fallen out of step with Jesus. And uh, I, I know my, for my own life, and, and maybe you can agree with me, uh, sometimes we don't take those moments to pause and sort of audit our lives and ask that question, how am I doing with Jesus? Um, and, and sometimes we can get so busy going through the motions, doing the church thing and doing the group thing and being connected to church people that we really don't take a moment to audit, what does our connection with Jesus look like? And what is God calling me in this season right now to put to death so that I can come alive in him? How is he calling me to reorient my heart and refocus my life around him? And where have I lost focus? And so the hope is that in this series, we would examine parts of our lives that maybe have fallen out of step with Jesus, or maybe you're, you're starting to follow Jesus for the first time and answering this question, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what does it look like to follow Jesus? And uh, lucky for us, we have uh, a whole book, a few books, but in Matthew, we see what this activity and what this action and what this lifestyle looks like. So we're going to Read Matthew 4, 12 through 17 one more time. Uh, it says this. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Uh, this is coming off the heels of Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, experiencing every single temptation known to man. And where humans have failed time and time again, Jesus has come out victorious. And where Israel failed, where Adam and Eve failed, where we have failed to prove our faithfulness to God, Jesus succeeded. And he comes out, he hears that uh, John has been arrested and he, he, he withdraws into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nazareth. 
Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Will you join me in prayer? And let's ask God to prepare our hearts to receive this word. Lord, we worship you uh, that that we get to do this this morning, that we get to uh, receive your word, receive grace, be transformed in your presence and do so in community. And Lord, we understand that this privilege is not one that is shared by other brothers and sisters around the world. And so we pray uh, that they would be comforted. We, we pray, Lord, that your hand would sweep over the, our, our church brother and sisters in, in Ukraine and that they would feel your peace and your proximity. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see this word and that it would take root in our heart. Lord, I ask that you would allow it to fall on good soil. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about following Jesus. And uh, when, we, when we think about this, uh, we spend the majority of our time in the New Testament. And that's not wrong because that's where we see Jesus the most. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all describe Jesus. Paul and James and these New Testament authors spend a majority of their time unpacking who Jesus is and what he's done and what it looks like to follow him. And, 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 and often when we, when we do that, what ends up happening is that we begin to neglect sort of this first half of the Bible. Uh, the, the book of the Old Testament, that has tremendous implications and tremendous background on, on what it means to follow Jesus, and more specifically, what kind of God we're relating to when we follow him. And so to unpack what it means to follow Jesus, we're going to briefly unpack the oldest story ever told. Uh, and in the oldest story ever told, we get a glimpse of who we are supposed to be, and how we are supposed to live. And as we begin to understand who we are supposed to be and how we're supposed to live and how God created us, it begins to inform the way we relate to God and follow Jesus. And so to do that, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you have your Bible, that is page 1. If you have really large font, that might be page 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Notice that plural sense, let us, who is talking here? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. In his own image, the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, leading up to this moment, we read that God creates the whole universe uh, and everything in it. Uh, he creates animals. He creates the, the animals in the sea, plants, vegetation, creation. He creates life, the life that we're familiar with and that we've experienced, God creates. And the crown jewel of his creation, the, the last thing that he creates, the, the, his creation that is of supreme importance to him are human beings. And as we read these first pages of scriptures and these first verses about God creating, uh, we don't just get a story of what God did. We get a picture of who God is. Uh, In the first pages of scripture, we witness some important details that show us what kind of God is God. And one of the first things that we see revealed about his character is that he is a powerful God. He is a powerful God, so powerful that he speaks and things come into existence. That by the word of his mouth, he controls creation and tells it what to do. That in his mind, in the mind of God, he envisions a world filled with life and he speaks and things come alive. He is powerful. And when we think about this idea of power and individuals being powerful, the normal testimony isn't that 
an individual use their power for the collective good. Rather, we hear time and time again about abuse of power for selfish gain. And when that happens, we, we see people get hurt. We see lives get lost. We see hearts get broken. And, and what we notice that when we look at the way power dynamics work in our culture is that it has this great ability to create greed and corruption. Uh, in a study conducted in 1998 called the Cookie Monster Study, uh, researchers found evidence that suggests that under certain circumstances, power has the ability to change people for the worse. Uh, from an article commenting on this study, uh, it says this, experimenters led participants into a lab and they were divided into groups of three. And in each group, one person was randomly appointed the leader. After the participants completed a simple exercise, an experimenter brought in a plate of five cookies. Sure enough, the designated leader was more likely to take a second cookie. And not only that, they were inclined to eat with their mouths all open and get crumbs all over the place. Uh, Male participants were especially messy eaters. I don't know why it says that, but we already know that's true. And though the title for the study is lighthearted, oh, the the cookie monster study, the the results are not as humorous. A psychology professor from the University of California, uh, Dacker Keltner, says that when you feel powerful, you kind of lose touch with other people. You stop attending carefully to what other people think. And the dark side of power going unchecked and uncontrolled is the creation of an individual that is so detached from others to the point that empathy, love, and human dignity, regard for others, is completely thrown out the window. It is this unchecked power that leads to all sorts of acts of violence and racism and injustices. And we know these horror stories of power breeding corruption and greed. We have felt where we've, we've been maybe under bosses or, 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 or leaders that, that might have used their power for selfish gain. And we've, we've seen that greed and we've seen that corruption and we've been burned by that fire. And yet in the first pages of the Bible, we're introduced to a God who is powerful. And, and what we see is that the most powerful individual in the entire universe is not a person who's been corrupted by power. We see a God who is good. And we see a God who is generous, so generous that after creating the world and everything in it, he looks at it and he says, this is good. And he chooses not to keep it all to himself, but he creates humans to share it with. We see a God who is all-powerful, but he's all-good, and he's generous. And this is really good news, church, because the picture of God that we see in the first pages of the Bible is not some deity that's corrupted by power. Rather, we see a God who is known by love, generosity, joy, and peace, and he's overflowing with goodness, so much so that he wants to share it with his people. And there is no ounce of greed or selfishness because he freely gives it away and he never runs out of it. He doesn't keep his power. What we see is that he shares it. We see that God is a generous king. And he creates humans to share the world with. And and what does his sharing look like? Let's let's look at uh, 26 and 28, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So let's pause and and take a, a look at that word dominion. Now, God is the author and king over everything. He is the supreme owner. He created it. It belongs to him. But he wants to share his ownership. And the creatures that get installed to share the responsibility of overseeing the flourishing of the world on God's behalf were humans. And and humans were, were supposed to be the overseers, the development of culture, the cultivators of land and cities where humans would create and build and bring meaning and purpose to the world that was empty and void. And in doing so, they would mirror God. Uh, They would image and represent God to all of creation. This right here, church, is the idea of ruling 
and reigning. And we get this from verse 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has called humans to partner with him and rule and reign the world on his behalf. Now, when we think about those words, rule and reign, we're a little bit disconnected and detached from those words. They, they, they seem kind of archaic because the most common example of an individual ruling and reigning is, is a king or a queen. Uh, that's what a king or queen does. They, they rule and they reign over their land, over their people. They see to the advancement of their culture and of their people and, and the flourishing of their nation. Kings and queens rule and reign. It's it's what they do. So when we think about kings and queens, I want you to think ruling and reigning. The same way when we think about bakers, bakers bake. Okay, swimmers swim. Winners, aka Dallas Cowboys, win. Okay, I'm just seeing if you're still with me. So kings and queens, they rule and reign. That is their function. That is what they do. So the idea is that humans, they don't just inhabit the world and take space. They create and recreate a world of flourishing, of goodness. Uh, They create culture and cultivate the land and bring meaning and purpose in such a way that would glorify God and be for their maximum enjoyment and good. Tim Mackey calls this being royal stewards in God's good world. And what we see in the Bible is that the Bible is a story about kingdoms and humans functioning as little kings and little queens uh, under the cosmic king to create a perfect world. A world filled with joy, a world filled with love, a world filled with peace that is for our enjoyment and yet at the same time glorifies God. And yet you and I know that that's not the world that we live in. And we don't need to look too far in history to realize this truth. Everywhere we look, we we bear witness to acts of violence and injustice. We see genocide and oppression currently happening in the world that we live in that is cementing the reality that there's a sin mechanism at work in the human heart that's been corrupted. And instead of using our God-given capacity to rule and reign and create a world of flourishing and goodness that promotes peace and justice and love, this mechanism is perverted. And instead of ruling and reigning with God for the glory of God, creating a world of peace and goodness, sin has corrupted the heart and we see a desire to rule and reign over people, creating a world filled with brokenness. We've seen allegiance to political and cultural preferences overshadow the call to love our neighbors and love our enemies. We've seen allegiances to preferences overshadow our call to lay down our lives for the sake of others. We've seen kingdoms rise and we've seen kingdoms fall. And all of this finds itself, finds its origin in in the following few pages of the Bible, Genesis 3. And in this chapter, we we find man and woman, Adam and Eve, king and queen, created by God to steward his good creation and rule and reign alongside of him and enjoy what God is sharing with them. Find themselves in a place where all that is going to be compromised, perverted, and lost. How does this happen? You know the story. The enemy comes into the picture in the form of a serpent with the sole intention of of disrupting the ruling and reigning. Uh, Disrupting and and getting in the way of this partnership that they have with God and their job to steward the world on God's behalf. And his plan is to sever their relationship with God the way his relationship with God was severed, through an act of disobedience. Ultimately, infecting the world with sin. Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the, uh, of, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, Adam and Eve's relationship with God, like all good relationships, was built on trust. Uh, They had experience with God. They lived with God. And God demonstrated himself to be a trustworthy God as they audited their experience and saw, man, we have a really good thing going here. Uh, We get to share all of this with God. We have connection and relationship with him. And all of God's commands, which was to be fruitful and multiply. And uh, by the way, don't touch this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do, you will experience death. That's the only command he, uh, one of the few commands he gave gave them. Uh, Surely their their history with God would have demonstrated that, okay, like he's a trustworthy God. If he's saying not to do this, then we can trust him. And, and their obedience to God had always been grounded in trust. And we know this because God never relates to Adam and Eve as this authoritative dictator who knows what's best for them and demands obedience and it has to be done his way. On the contrary, we see an invitation into relationship that is marked by love and obedience that is grounded in trust. The belief that God is good and that God is love and that God is for them and not holding anything back. And the enemy says, did God really say you can't eat of that tree? Now, all we have to do is flip back a few pages to find out that God really did say that. But the serpent produces an effective lie because it has a seed of truth in it. And we've been unpacking this idea of how God is powerful yet generous and and how he's sharing his creation with Adam and Eve and he's giving them the garden. He's giving them the world to share with, with the exception of one tree. Now, if I had the ability uh, to give you all the money in the world, and I'm just kidding, I don't. If I had the ability to give you all the money in the world with the exception of, I don't know, one Bitcoin, I said, that one just belongs to me. You can have all the money in the world, every single currency, every single resource. It all belongs to you, except this one coin. That one belongs to me. You, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't call me a stingy person. Because my act of generosity would characterize me as a generous person. God has withheld nothing back from Adam and Eve except one tree in the garden that would bring about their death and destruction if it was consumed. And God gives them a generous command to not eat of it in order to protect them. And the enemy takes this moment to flip a generous command and make it seem restrictive and unloving and stingy. Did God really say that? That tree, you can't eat of it? Really? I I thought he was a generous God. This seems kind of greedy and stingy. Why is he holding back? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And as I've heard one pastor point out, he is not asking Eve to taste the fruit. He is chipping away at her trust in God. The enemy is planting doubt in her trust in God, attempting to create a relational rupture that would create unbelief. Hmm, maybe, maybe you are right. Maybe God didn't say that after all. After all, he is a generous God and he is a good God. Why would he hold something back? And unbelief, time and time again, we see will lead to mistrust. And instead of remembering and relating to God based on her experience and history with God, she relates to God according to the enemy's deception and lie about him. And a false belief takes over, which will eventually lead to their disobedience and destruction. And instead of living in submission to God, they govern themselves in that moment and take the seat of authority in their life. And when we audit our lives, when we examine the areas where we've fallen short before God, 
what we will discover is that it wasn't that we never measured up or that temptation or sin issue at hand was too difficult to deal with. Rather, our shortcomings, our disobedience, most of the time was the fruit of unbelief and false beliefs about God. For example, maybe you don't believe that God is good and that his timing is perfect. And the enemy begins to chip away at your trust in him. And so then you begin to believe that he is selfishly holding something back from you. And instead of trusting him and waiting on him, you remove God from the throne and you call the shots on your own life. When you don't believe that God loves you, the enemy will begin to chip away at your trust in him. And you'll spend a lifetime looking for a love that is grand enough to fill your heart and yet close enough to make you feel known and seen. When you don't believe that God is with you in your suffering and that justice belongs to the Lord, the enemy will begin to chip away at your trust in God. Really, that's the God you believe in? Nothing's happening here. And you'll spend a lifetime vindicating yourself, distracting yourself from your pain by pursuing anything and everything but God. Trying to create a world for yourself that is optimal for you, but isn't the one that God wants you to live in. When you don't believe that your children belong to the Lord, the enemy will begin to chip away at your trust in him. And instead of offering your children to the Lord and and being his good stewards and ambassadors, you'll spend a lifetime trying to optimize them into the best version of your preferences. And when you feel like a failure, you'll hold on to the guilt and the feeling of failure when the truth is that the Lord takes joy in shouldering your pain with you. And in his kingdom, our worst efforts can still work out for good and his glory. When you don't believe that a relationship with God can be truly satisfying and life-giving, the enemy will begin to chip away at your trust in God. And he'll make you believe the lie that the right relationship and that the right job and that the right career and that the right major and that the right friend group will satisfy you and fulfill you. Only to realize that those things aren't big enough to fill the God-sized hole in your heart created by sin. The enemy, as we see, is an expert at eroding away trust in God, taking truth and distorting it just enough to keep us from following him and instead follow our own ways. Now, why have we spent a majority of our time retelling an ancient and familiar story? We see Adam and Eve's obedience has always been grounded in their trust in God. And their failure is the result of mistrust, their unbelief. And their failure not only fractured their relationship with God, it fractured the entire universe and the entire order of creation. And so instead of co-laboring with God to build his kingdom and enjoy union with him, now humans seek to build alternate kingdoms. And instead of building a world that's known by love, we build a a world that is known by our own self-interest and hostility takes over. And the story of humans in the scriptures and the story of humans in history is not one of creating a world of flourishing, rather further destruction. And yes, there are a few bright spots here and there, but none of them are bright enough to to push back the darkness that plagues the human heart. And when sin separates us from God and sin infects the human heart, division and disobedience become the norm. Uh, Divided hearts produce disordered desires that give way to destructive kingdoms. And instead of ruling and reigning with God, humans take their God-given capability to rule, to reign, and they use it against each other for selfish purposes. Instead of building a kingdom with God, humans build alternate kingdoms. Instead of living in God's truth and shaping their lives around God's story, we live out stories of unbelief and the consequences for such unbelief eventually leads to all sorts of distance and pain. We experience this gap and this gap is rarely filled with good things. Rather, it's filled with pain and suffering and oppression and a quality of life that the Bible calls death. See, kings like Pharaoh and kingdoms like Egypt rise up and oppose God and enslave God's children. We see broken kings like David and Saul who have their good moments and seem promising, but somewhere along the line join a list of kings who've compromised in their faith and under-deliver on their promise and potential. We see empires like Assyria that promise freedom and security if you just join them and bow down to their pagan worship, but We see that just produces more compromise and disobedience. And instead of living a liberated life, they find themselves in bondage to Assyria, 
and then Babylon. And 60 years before Jesus is born, another kingdom occupies the nation of Israel. This time it's Rome. And they weren't the first nation to do it, but they would be the last. And to make matters worse, the Romans installed a puppet king, not a king that would rule and reign with God, a king that would rule and reign over people oppressively, Herod the Great and later his sons, a king that would give the appearance of having the people's interests in mind, but wouldn't rule peacefully and justly, would reign harshly and preside death as we see over innocent children. And bring about destruction in the nation. And the Jewish, the Jewish people's history was rich with scriptures that described the king. Scriptures like Exodus chapter 15 verse 1. The Lord is my, my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. He goes on to say the Lord will reign forever and ever. If there's anybody that should be sitting on the throne. It's not that king. It's not that king. It's Yahweh the king of kings. Scriptures like Psalm 10, verse 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. We want a king. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is on the earth may strike terror no more. Do you hear the cry for a king? Do you hear the cry for a ruler and reigner that would execute justice and favor and provision on God's behalf in such a way that would contribute to our flourishing and good? And outraged Jews would recall these scriptures that described a king who would bring peace and justice when all they've ever known was oppression and fear. Describing a king that would rule with compassion and love, but they look at their immediate circumstance and see death and hostility. A king that would set them free, and as they examine their lives, they're more enslaved than ever. A king that would put an end to the pain, an end to the insecurity, an end to the injustice. They believed for a king, and the word promised a king. But not just any king. The promise that God himself would be their king. And not just the king of Israel, the king over the world, the king who would make everything right again. N.T. Wright, commenting on Israel's longing for freedom, says, There should be no king but God, the revolutionaries believed. God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, was what they longed for, what they prayed for, what they worked for, what they prepared to die for. And God enacts a plan to restore the world, to bring his kingdom to bring a king that will not fail or fall into temptation, that will not compromise their call. A king that will actually push back the power of darkness and begin to undo the effects that sin has over us. So much so that trust and faith in God could be restored. A trust and faith in God that would empower humans to love God and joyfully obey him. God promises a king, a king that would crush the serpent, a king that confronts evil. A king that would step into the darkness and shine a light so bright that would liberate people from the darkness in their heart and darkness would flee. And a first century Roman tax collector who was considered a traitor for working for the opposing kingdom turned follower of Jesus named Matthew tells us that the king we desperately long for and that we desperately need has arrived. And when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah years before might be fulfilled. That in this land, in the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, me and you have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. What do we know about this region? When the Israelites were conquered by the Assyrians 700 years prior and deported from their home to be exiled in a foreign nation, the first region to fall to the enemy was this land. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. This is modern day Galilee. Uh, This was the region that always fell first to the enemy. The people living in this region had the deepest history of pain. 
The people living in this region had the deepest history of loss. The people living in this region had the deepest history of suffering and anguish. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry. And from that time, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent? Jesus, that seems a bit tone deaf, don't you think? I mean, you're stepping foot into a land that's marked by death and destruction and and, and suffering. And the first word you have to say is, is repent. I mean, after all, isn't isn't this the word of choice that hyper-holiness Christian groups use to judge people? Uh, Jesus, don't you think this is a bit extreme? And here's the good news of the kingdom of God, church. When Jesus shouts, repent, it is not some form of judgmental fire and brimstone street preaching. It is not some insensitive, careless man who is out of touch with reality, yelling at people because he is annoyed by sinners for acting like sinners. No, hear me, church. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is not an indictment on humanity. This is an invitation to experience grace. An invitation to live in the kingdom of God that you've been exiled and separated from. An invitation to experience a relationship with God that was lost in the garden can now be restored by simply turning to him. When Jesus says repent, he is inviting you to experience the freedom that you've always longed for, but couldn't find in the story that you're living and writing for yourself. When Jesus says repent, he is inviting you to experience a freedom that is available to you because King Jesus has arrived to deliver you from the bondage of sin and the power of the enemy. When Jesus says repent, it is an invitation to turn away from living for yourself so you can discover your true purpose that flows out of being in relationship with God. When Jesus says repent, it is an invitation to experience hope life-giving hope, hope that is not found in created things, but hope that comes from the creator stepping into the land of darkness and saying, look here, hope has arrived. Joy has arrived. Peace has arrived. The kingdom of God, the king himself has arrived. When Jesus says repent, it's an invitation to leave behind sin to move away from unbelief and the ways of disobedience that is only producing pain and distance from God, to experiencing healing and proximity to the king of the the universe through the simple act of setting our body, heart, soul, and mind towards Jesus. When Jesus says repent, it's an invitation to experience the power and authority that was lost in the garden and perverted by the enemy. It is an invitation, hear me church, to live under his rule and reign all over again as the true king and co-labor with him to renew the world and see it restored to its former glory. It's an invitation to experience joy and freedom that comes from not living autonomous lives where we call our own shots and we do what we think is best for us. No, it's an invitation to surrender, to place our lives under the creator of life and see how we come alive from being in relationship with him. When Jesus says repent, it's not hate speech. It's not some authoritative dictator who is grumpy and angry and casting judgment. It's an invitation of grace. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself shows us that obedience to the Father is not restrictive, but it's life-giving. Jesus himself shows us that the Father is not some sort of cosmic kill joy, but there's a joy that comes from God, John 15, that comes from abiding and being with him, a joy that this world can't produce that is out of this world that comes from him. And Jesus shows us that the the safest place and the most secure place we can ever find ourselves in is not us grasping for control over our own lives, but surrendering it to the Father and being in his hands. Jesus shows us that obedience to God's word is life-giving and that his word is actually trustworthy. And where the enemy would try to come in and chip away at Jesus' trust in God the Father while being tempted in the wilderness, as we discussed last week, What did Jesus do? He recalled the very words of God and his experience with the Father, and he remained faithful where Adam and Eve failed. 
He remained faithful where Israel failed. Why? So that you and I can be redeemed and brought back to the Father and trust him all over again. Frederick Bruner says, there's nothing tricky about its meaning. Uh, It does not tell you what to turn from specifically. The emphasis is on turning from our preoccupations, whether it's sin or whether it's good things, and turning towards God. And whatever keeps you from turning toward the coming kingdom, that is, uh, from which you should turn, turn from it. The, the very uh, objectlessness of the verb stresses the simplicity and so the urgency of turning. What do we turn away from? Whatever is keeping you from turning towards God. Hear me, church. Good things. Good things like, like, like your favorite television show or, or your favorite YouTube channels or, 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 or your phone. Or, or social media, good things that would preoccupy your life. He's calling you to turn away from it. Receive this invitation of grace. And just as equally, things that, that, that cause death in our life. The sins and habits and practices that we take on, that we believe are life-giving. Jesus extends to us something that is far greater than what we're feasting on in this world. And that is this bread of life. The change of direction is, is, is possible when the arrival of God's kingdom invades our own. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is now declaring that the kingdom they longed for, the kingdom they prayed for, the kingdom they worked for, the kingdom they were prepared to die for has arrived. And notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus doesn't say, repent so that the kingdom of God will come into your life. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom is here. And where is this kingdom coming from? Uh, The heaven, or as the Greek says, the heavens. And we see that the kingdom represents both a place and a power. The king's domain is a place. The king's dominion means power. So the kingdom of God is the place where we were made for, to live in, to reside in. And the place that we lost when our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, experienced sin in the garden. And the kingdom is a power we were designed to experience, the power of God's sovereign rule and reign. And it says it's the kingdom of the heavens. What does this mean? In other words, it's out of reach. A place with God that is beyond our reach has now come so close in the form of a person, the God-man, Jesus the Christ. He didn't say repent so that the kingdom will come. He says repent because the kingdom has come. Jesus is the kingdom of God. His sovereign rule and reign over the entire universe. Now, why does this matter? Why am I stressing this? Because there's two ways that we will spend our time with God and use our energy following Jesus. The first is working and fixing ourselves towards the kingdom of God. And the second is repenting and receiving the kingdom of God. Working, we will find ourselves in this temptation that I got to fix myself and I got to earn and I got to do the right stuff and behave the right way and get my morality at a certain place and give the appearance of godliness and start beginning to check off areas of victory of my life and begin to cross off shortcomings so that God will receive me and I can be approved by him and worthy of his love. And when we believe that the scripture says repent so that the kingdom will come, we'll spend a lifetime of trying to earn and achieve something that's been freely given to you. It doesn't say repent so that the kingdom will come. It doesn't say work and fix and crawl and make your way to a far off kingdom so you can experience this enlightenment with God. No, it says repent because the kingdom of God has drawn near. And so what does this relationship look like? It's one that's based off grace and faith. It's where we bring to Jesus our shortcomings, our sin, our inabilities, our failures, and receive his grace and his empowerment to become more and more like him. It is a relationship that is not based off striving or earning. It's one of simply being with Jesus. And the more we are with him, the more he begins to transform us and we receive power and grace to walk in all that he's called us to be. It's not striving It's not earning, it's not doing, and making things right. It's receiving the righteousness that God has already made available for us in Christ Jesus on the other side of turning towards him and receiving his grace. 
our default option seems to be the first. We, uh, we, we, we believe that God is beyond reach and we want to close the gap for ourselves and we want to climb the Mount Everest of our sin, and plant our flag at the top and show the world, look how much I've conquered and look how accomplished I am. And then we begin to search for God and we realize that he was never up there to begin with. And in the kingdom of God, he invites us to a relationship that is not dictated by our performance, but is grounded in his love, in his mercy, in his grace. Look no further than the cross of Christ, and there you'll find the kingdom of God has come to you. When we failed to crush the serpent and defeat the enemy, Jesus conquers for us. He gives us victory. How? By laying down his life and dying for our sin. And where we could not overcome death and where we could not overcome the power of the sin, Jesus does when he rises from the dead. And what do we see? He's not held back by sin. He's not held back by death. He rises above it and offers us new life to all those who would repent, to all who would turn away from working and fixing themselves, to turning to him and allowing his grace to transform you from the inside out. An imprisoned man who captured this good news and left behind a life of earning and striving to one of repenting and receiving says it this way from a jail cell. And though he is in bondage and in captivity, he is freer than any other person around him when he says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Listen, church, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. He qualified you to share in his inheritance all over again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness that we found us in, picked us up, escorted us out, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And when we find ourselves trying to ease back into the kingdom that he rescued us from, good luck trying to get back there because he's transferred you, he's removed you, and you are now identified in his love, in his son. You have redemption and your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? As we see from this passage, it means submitting and surrendering our lives to his lordship and placing ourselves under his rule and reign. And as we do that, we see this invitation to rule and reign with him and walk in power, walk in authority, walk in victory that he freely gives to us. It is moving away from the kingdom of darkness to living in the reality of his kingdom. Not one where we work and fix ourselves, but where we practice this rhythm of repenting, constantly turning to him. And we experience this truth that whenever you turn to God, he's there to meet you. And he transforms and he gives life. Let us receive this grace as we close in prayer.